Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. So now we are going to go into post-Pentateuchal expressions that are troubling and interesting. And as I said, you will see some some pictures, um, not not that I've taken, but uh, one of the places I actually uh, visited and saw myself. Oh, two of them. Yeah. All right. So we're now going to what I was saying. Yeah. Uh, no, not yet. I'm, I'm talking to myself. All right. So we're going, I'm going to ask you now to turn to the in your holy Bible to the book of Joshua. Uh, you're going to turn to the last chapter, which is chapter 24. And we are going to look at verse 1 and then skip to verse 22. All right. So here we go. The Yasof Yehoshua at Koshite Yisrael Shema. Okay, so Joshua gathers uh, the uh, all the tribes of Israel to the town of Shechem, and he remember they're just now they've just they begun the phase of the settlement of the tribes into the land of Canaan. Okay. And all those stories uh, are told. We're not going to talk about them. And so he says to the elders of Israel and to their leaders and judges and officials, as they stand, before God. So what does it tell us about Shechem? An important place. Maybe an altar's there. It's, well, more than important. But if you're standing before God there, what does it imply? That God's that, presence is there. And that means there is a... Oh, a matzeva? <laughs> Not an altar? I didn't say matzeva yet. Not with that, no. But there is a shrine of some kind, a whole set up there. Right? So it is known for being a cultic center. Of some kind, it's like Kuntelet Kuntelet Aruj Aruj in in the Sinai, uh, not far from the Negev, uh, which I'll show you in a moment or two. Uh, anyhow, there was—it's not a temple, but it's a shrine, it's a place where God's presence is found. Uh, all. The I don't think anybody has any notion of exactly what what cultic activity took place there, uh, but anyway, or anyway, it was a traditional cultic center of some kind where Hashem was worshipped. Okay, and so that's Shem is a, is one of those places. I even uh, just to remind you, and I showed you the the map, right? The my famous all scribbly map. So number six here is Shem, right? It's right over there, Shem. Okay. All right, Shem. With with all these officials being there, the elders, the magistrates, the commanders, wouldn't it kind of imply it's a major center, kind of almost maybe a capital like oh, Jerusalem? Became one of the capitals uh, for a while. Yes, it was. It, it's a, yes, it's a major. It was, 
It's, well, no, Reb, no, 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 no. He gathered them there. That means they weren't there from, at the outset. No, oh, she, he brought them there. Okay. Bam becomes a central city over the, you know, it's, it's, it's technically, it's not, it's in, it's in Ephraim. It's, let me see, it's in, yes, it's in Ephraim. It's not in Judah. Part of the Northern Kingdom was a major governmental center and a, and a cultic center. Uh, okay, Tybal. Oh, so, um, what I remember is all the Midrash about Yaakov after the Dina episode. Yaakov would never go past Shlem. He would avoid it, et cetera, et cetera. So offhand, I don't remember. It had to be after Yaakov. Who made it um, a cultic center? Do we know? I don't know. I don't know. We don't know. Okay. Uh, this this would lend credence to the notion that I mean it, it may have developed uh, let, some options. All right, so we're we're they're now in a, a number of period of time has passed since they entered the land, and it may be that a cultic center was set up at some point while they were conquering areas. Okay, but we don't know. The the other thing is it's an area that they it's in the area they conquered. Uh, on the other hand, it could have been an ancient pagan cultic center, which the Israelites took over, or it could be you know there's a lot of people who think that the return to the land or the you know the retaking of the land under Joshua uh, is not a new presence of Israel it's that. It, it, it's it, those who challenge the detailed historicity of the enslavement, okay, and who that it's not exactly the that the Bible gives us a uh, a redacted, reinterpreted over generations depiction of the entire slavery and redemption process, which of course is miraculous, okay. So all that we can call a kind of a mythic expression doesn't necessarily mean that there were no Israelites already living in Canaan because we know, and this is before Joshua, in around 1210, the Pharaoh at the time goes into Canaan and conquers different, reconquers it for the Take of the Egyptian uh, empire, okay, and um, it, it's uh, Merneptha was the yes, the the, um, the the pharaoh. So his troops reconquer Canaan. This is around twelve ten, and he there's a statement there: Israel is no more, and that's a quotation. Okay, Israel is no more. It doesn't know what Israel doesn't say what it is. Generally, the other names of locations or cities, towns that they conquer. Here, with respect to Israel, don't know. It's some a reference to a people, perhaps a group, okay, tribes. We don't know. But it implies that there were already people there. Uh, now, where Joshua fits into this whole discussion, we don't know, because we don't know the exact dates of the Exodus, right? 
you know, and what it represented. But what it means, a lot of people are saying, say, I mean, scholars say that there were Israelites or proto-Israelites who remained in the land while the enslavement in Egypt took place. And this is on the assumption that there was some form of enslavement, and there's no reason not to assume, and we can talk about that. That's a whole other story. So, I mean, it's possible that there were Israelites there who either were the first contingent of people who came into the land, or they were, it depends when the exodus is. This could be, I mean, if the exodus took place under uh, 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 Ramses II, okay, which is a very tempting thing to say because it talks about them that, that the Israelites built a city called Ramses. And Ramses II was the great builder. And Ramses II was a guy who was very interested in Canaan, you know, and in that area because it was part of a bridge to Mesopotamia, right? And it was it allowed them. They, if they controlled Canaan and what would be today Syria and Iraq, those areas, which they did for, for a long time, they could defend themselves against attacks from the north, from the northeast. So it was, and, and Ramses is, is heavy into Semitic, um, people of Semitic interest in Egypt. I'm not going into details. He knows the importance of Canaan. Okay, so uh, somehow, if if we say, and he ruled from about what twelve eighty to twelve, he lived to be old man to twelve twenty something like that BCE. Okay, and he, as I say, did a lot of building, and there were names. There was there was a town called P. Ramses. He's the home of Ramses. And he moved his capital from the down the central part of the Nile up north near Goshen, okay? Because it was closer for him to the coastal route up north. Think about it, right? Think you're in the del- the area of the Nile Delta. Got the picture of Egypt in front of you. It's sort of in the northeast corner, up right up there on the right. All right, and the Nile flows from the south up into there and spreads out. Well, it's near the same area that we presume Goshen is. And who lived in Goshen? The Israelite slaves. Israelite slaves. Right. right. And so he made it his capital. And it was also the capital before that of the Hyksos, who are the shepherd kings who came down from Mesopotamia, Syria, right? They are Semites, and they ruled from 1650 to 1550 in Egypt. It's complicated, right? But the point is, Ramses had an interest in the land of Canaan, okay? And his son, Menepta, goes ahead and completes that process by conquering it and getting it back under the control of the empire. Okay, so the question is, when exactly is Joshua? When was the Exodus? 
right? How long did the con- conquest take? The supposed conquest, all right? And and so who was there? So it could have been early people who who were freed slaves. Uh, and now, now we're talking Shem, okay? And then the the Merneptah stone that has reference to Israel is no more. Doesn't say anything about towns. So what the what what? How big was Shem then? Was it a was it a you know a significant city? Was it a you know? And yes, it's related to Shem ben Hamor from the time of Jacob, but that's centuries before that, and that's part of what I call the mythic history of our people. Because those are ancient stories, and you know it's it's they're beyond the the reach of of serious uh, archaeological study, and we don't know. Okay, so anyway, so Shem, but but all it's saying is that sometime after I don't know twelve fifty BCE, whenever the conquest was. Um, sometime in that time, there was a cultic center there, and and so it's the point that I'm trying to get to is <laughs> that it's a place where you would go if you want to do something with respect to a, a religious expression to Hashem. All right, and that's where we're heading. Okay, so that's that's why that's there. Look, Kuntilat Aryuj in the desert was some kind of a makeshift cultic center. I mean, the buildings, the, 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 what's there, what we have there. And it was important because, I think I mentioned last time, it means that the best guess as to what that name means is like the, the hills with the water, because there was, it was a, an oasis. And it was about 30 kilometers southwest from Kadesh Barnea, which is on the side of the line, the, the line today with Egypt. Okay, but if you go... On a northeasterly direction, for thirty miles, fifty kilometers, you're at Kadesh Barnea, and that's also an oasis, not necessarily a cultic center. All right. So anyhow, the point is we don't know enough about these things. But when you say this already, it implies that according to the story that we have in the Book of Joshua, there is about to be some kind of significant cultic expression. And now we're going to continue reading with verse 22. Do we know when the book of Joshua was written? Oh, God, I don't know. <laughs> we don't know anything about okay. that. Written- then, 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 then the other question, I know a number of years ago, Rabbi Wolpe uh, created a huge stir when he questioned whether the Exodus actually had ever happened. Is there is there in fact archaeological evidence that it did? I mean, other than the fact that people have believed it for three thousand years and it's in our book. Um, there archaeological no, because what do slaves leave behind? Okay, they, well, they didn't leave earrings and huh? gold. They took the earrings and gold, so they didn't leave that behind. They borrowed it. They still hadn't returned it, right. but they borrowed it. Well, no, that's the, that's back payment for all the years of slavery. So that they had a right to it, absolutely. You know, hagonev me haganav patur. Somebody at Talmud, if you steal from a thief, you don't have to. You're not punished. All right. So it's an ancient biblical tradition. All right. No, so uh, don't know. Um, that's a different subject. Yeah. 
So I mean, but the, the to 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 build to build clear, uh, universally accepted historical uh, details into this ancient time, it's very difficult. Very, it's it. I mean, I, I'm I I grope. All right, I grope for these things, and uh, but you know when you find a stone and you can date it, and there's writing on it, that helps, right? Doesn't help explain when this began. You know what the situation on the ground was. Don't know. And this story that's going to happen here, I'm more interested in what's included in it, whether it is historic or not. But the fact that it says what it's going to say is really surprising and you'll see why in a minute all right so now we are on genesis uh, jo- the book of joshua chapter 24 verse 22 good afternoon good morning afternoon bobby meth now uh, verse 22 vayomer yehoshua el ha'am joshua says to the people edim atem bachem ki atem bachartem lachem et adonai so he says to the people, you are witness uh, to, to yourselves that you have chosen for you Adonai to worship him. And the people say, Edim, indeed, we are witnesses. So they declare that they are witnesses. It's, it's like when um, Moses um, begins the before the Ten Commandments, and he tells the people, get ready. And it says, he says, everything that God will do, whatever God tells us to do, we're going to do. And then it's repeated after they get it. And they say, we will do and, and listen to everything that God, to the words of that covenant. Okay, that's at Sinai with Moses. So it's the same response here. Yeah, huzzah, hoorah. Do you, do you are you witnesses that you choose God? Hoorah! Yes, we choose God. Good. All right. So now, therefore, then he says, "Ata ho ho, hasiru et elohei hanecharasher bekirbechem." All right. Put away all those alien gods that you have among you. Vahatu et levavchem el Adonai elohei Yisrael. Okay, and direct your hearts to the Eternal, the God of Israel. Whoa, that means they had idols. This is after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, right? Where do they get idols? Well, maybe they picked them up while they were conquering and said, oh, aren't these nice? I don't know. <clears throat> but he says, get rid of them. It's the same thing that, jo- that we saw that Jacob said, right, when he brings uh, the ladies, his wives, in from Haran, and they brought with them all their household Idols, and he says, get rid of them. And he buries them under a very, very beautiful tree. Remember, we talked about that last time. All right. Okay. So, and so they, they, okay, now, oh, here we are. Vayomer Hamel Yoshua, the people say to Yeshua, et Adonai Eloheinu Avod, we will serve God, our Yudhevavhe, our God. And we will listen to his voice. Sound familiar, doesn't it? We will do and we will. Wow. It's like 
They remembered what happened at Mount Sinai. Quinta, these are the children. Well, their parents told them about it. All right? Sounds like, you know, of course, you know what they say in French, Gornish Telfen. Mm -hmm. Because, you know. Wait, what? What? Say that again? I know the French is really Yiddish, but I missed the word. Did you say Gornished? Nothing helps. They reverted back to their pagan customs. They were never purified. All right, but that's what they said. Now, this is the next line. <clears throat> now it's critical. And on that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And he made it in Shem a fixed law, a fixed rule for them. Okay? Now, so then, so he's renewing the covenant. All right, he already had a mass circumcision of the people after they came into the land. All right, but now he is uh, doing a formal, and you're going to see how formal in just a minute. All right, so Vayichtov Yehoshua et Atvarim Ha'ele Besefer Torah Elohim, and so this is really interesting. He wrote all of these things in the book of the law or the teachings of Elohim. So he there's some book that he wrote it in. All right? Now, maybe that's the scroll that Moses brought down the mountain in which he had written the law originally. But you see, he's imitating. He's doing everything that Moses did. Remember that when Moses came, when Moses, uh, after the Ten Commandments and the law, was presented by God to the people, and Moses is being the intermediary, repeating what what God said and so forth. He writes it down. I'm talking Exodus 24. It's the first Torah scroll. He writes it down in a book, parchment, presumably, or papyrus, whatever it was. That's what we say when the Torah is lifted. That was written by the hand of Moses. Exactly. Exactly. Good. That is correct. And by the way, the covenant is not simply the Ten Commandments. I'm of the opinion that the first set of Ten Commandments, and maybe the second set as well, we don't know, contained all the laws in the Exodus covenant code, because it was written on both in both on both sides. So and that's not unusual. In fact, I was just reading one of the contemporary scholars. Uh, who, who was wondering, he said, why do you need two big pieces of, well, the pieces of stone were this big. But the Ten Commandments, why do you need two pieces of stone for the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words? You can get them all on one. Why two? My answer is because it wasn't only the Ten Commandments. The covenant code was written, and it says so. It says that that's what he he brought down but the stones of the covenant doesn't say the Ten Commandments. You will not find the word Ten Commandments in the Exodus account here. You got to go later on to, to Exodus chapter 34, where he brings down the second batch. And even there, it sounds like he's bringing down the shortened version of the covenant that is given in that chapter. <clears throat> this is the second set, right? <clears throat> but over there, it's it's a tack on. It says Aseret Hadvarim, the ten words, and it looks like somebody tacked it on to the end of the story. 
Because up until that time, it sounds as if he's bringing the, the tablets of the covenant. Okay, so now there's no tablets, but now he's doing what Moses did. He's writing it down. Joshua is writing it down, and he has a scroll, and that is the scroll of the law, of the covenant. But now, so the, he writes it down. Now what does it say? Vayikach even gedolah. Okay? And he took a great stone and set it up at the foot of the oak in the sacred precinct of God. What did he stand up? A big stone. What do you call a big standing stone by a tree? <laughs> this is a what? Amatseva, no? Yeah. Joshua stood up Amatseva. Old habits don't die easily. Yes, but here's the interesting thing. <clears throat> the redaction of the book of Joshua is often seen as an extension of the book of Deuteronomy. And what book, more than any other, goes after these Matsevot and other forms of pagan worship? Deuteronomy. So how did the Deuteronomic redactor, assuming that that is, it is correct, because the language, the language in the book of Joshua is very similar to the language in Deuteronomy. Everybody agrees with that. You don't have to be a genius to see that. All right, so how did he allow this to come in? Why didn't he cut it out? Clearly because it had some significance for the people. And so, but here, so now look at verse 27, and you will see, remember at the beginning, he says, you are witnesses to this, yes? <clears throat> look at this, <clears throat> excuse me. So Joshua says to all the people, this stone will be for us a witness. He at Kol because the stone has heard all the words of God. that He said to us. And it will be for you a witness, a testimony against you if you break faith with God. Okay. So, so it looks like the redactor put into Joshua. I'm going to be very critical here. He had to find a way to justify it. So now he's picking up on what Jacob said when he does his deal with Laban, and they have these, there's a matzeva. He doesn't consecrate that one. Here, there is no act of consecration of the matzeva. That is significant, okay? Because it means that there, if I, based upon the Jacob account, the first time around where he puts on the puts up the matzavah, we talked about this and pours oil over it, he consecrates it. There's no formal act of consecration with sacred oil here. Okay, so maybe that's the out. And what this line says is, and maybe this is what Joshua's intention was, all right, this is not God. God is not in this stone, right? It's It's a testimony. That's what it is. So don't get it wrong, guys. But that's not what the book of Deuteronomy says. It says flat, no standing stones. 
And why did he put it by an oak tree, which is worshipped as a sign of Asherah? So to the eye, it looks like, oh, there's Hashem and his Asherah, his consort, standing right there. That's a common phenomenon if you go and look at all of the, uh, uh, the not all, but many of the references to pagan, pagan-like worship. Okay? It's confusing, folks, but it shows you the degree to which these pagan customs were absorbed into ancient Israelite religious religious experiences. And again, this is it's Mikdash, it's it's called Mikdash Yudhevava. It is a sacred place to God. There's no question that it said so right before. This is, this is the place is sanctified to God, Shem. This this worship center is sanctified to God. It was already apparent. Okay? Matseva oak tree. Hmm. All right? Takes a long time to wash out the stain of paganism from monotheism. Ooh, I just made that up. Okay. Bert. Yeah, I, I was just going to say from 10,000 feet, okay, this is not a one-directional story when we look at Exodus and Deuteronomy and Joshua and forward, that it really is the story of a flow back and forth to monotheism, I mean, to pure monotheism. And it was it wasn't enough for Moses just to say, do this, do that. Even if Moses said, God said this, that it took a, a, a long, a long time. I was kind of floored that after after the splitting of the Red Sea and the 40 years in the desert and being delivered into the promised land. Here are the people again with their idols. So it really is more of a back and forth that flows upward over a long period of time. Exactly. Well, that's the whole point. There's no, I, there's, you're hundred percent. I take, I think you're hundred percent correct. Well, I'm just agreeing with you. <laughs> but you didn't, you agreed with everything I said. Oh, okay. I agree with everything you said. <laughs> no, you got it. No, it's exactly <laughs> right. It's exactly right. Yes. I mean, the Bible doesn't say that. Bible doesn't say, okay, now we're going to, we're going to show you. There's no introductory paragraph at some point. All right. Book of Exodus. We're now going to show you how the belief in one God evolved, and from you know from a a belief in in this one this God who may be one of many gods, but the supreme God. How this morphed into this is the only God we're going to worship. To this is the only God. Period. Remember, I gave you those four terms of different Uh forms of worship of God, right? And there's four choices, and exactly. What you said, it's a step-by-step process where over time and experience and history... And sometimes it goes backwards. Huh? Sometimes it takes two steps forward and a step backwards. Yeah, that's true. Or, or three steps backwards. Step forward and two steps backwards. Depend what part of the country when, too. You know, I mean, different times. Look, when Ahab... I see your hand, Tybal. When Ahab was the king... Baal worship was on the upswing, you know, in the stock market. They were buying Baal stock, and and Hashem stock was going down, okay, because this king was running around, and the people were doing it, and poor Eliyahu, uh, you know, uh, Eliyahu Anavi is pulling his hair out, right? So, I mean, there you go. Okay, Tybal. Um, Bird said it, but... Uh, certain things, but what it struck me by, because often 
one of the analogies of God to people is parent to child. Yes. And parenthood is when it's done is always three steps forward, two steps back. So it just reinforced the parenthood metaphor. I used to say that from the time I became a parent, probably even before. Now I also say it for medical recovery for big things. But when I think about it that way, that would be the expectation because that's how maturing humans behave. It's not it's a process. It's not a bifurcated one to the next. Exactly. Yes. And that's a good analogy. Yes. Yes. Of course. Right. Our heavenly father. Yep. Okay. Of course, we now say Avinu, Vimotenu, whatever. We want that too, because we got, you know, well, that's God. No, God is, God is gender free. Mm, okay. Well, of course he's gender free. He's not a human being. So what do you expect? All right. Okay, so now there you have the first item that I wanted to look at. And now that we're recovering from our shock, we're going to turn to yet another one. Okay? All right. Uh, but just but before, I promised you that I was going to show you one thing. So I do have on the map here. Um, okay. And this is the, the map that I, I forgot where I got this. I got it online. Um but here you can see where that little red dot is. Does the map make sense to you? That you should be familiar. Yes, that's the the current boundary to eat with Egypt. All right. So you see the um the dot? All right, see that blotch right there? I just I just put that in. That's approximately and I measured it against the down here, you know, you have the it tells you the mile the equivalency in miles. So it's about right. That's Kadesh Barnea, uh, which is, that's where the um, Moses hit the rock when he wasn't supposed to. And and then the fact is, water, So that whole discussion there, the whole incident is water. And Kadesh was also a an oasis. So that, that makes, that, that works. All right. Now, we're now going to look at... Um, uh, let me make sure I didn't skip anything. Hold on. Ah, uh, yes. Just as a quick example. Well, no, I'm going to go here. Uh, all right. We're, I'm skipping this, but I'll just tell you about it. All right. So at a certain point in time, um, Saul and his servant seek out a seeker, and it's supposed to, it turns out being Samuel. So this is First Samuel chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. And so he says, um, tomorrow at this time, uh, he's coming, the seeker is coming to the city because there is a sacrificial offering tomorrow at the Bama. Okay, and this is in 1 Samuel. They're gathering and Samuel is going to be there at the Bama. Okay, and they're going there to have a celebration. Right, what's a Bama? A high place, right? And what? Uh, well, yeah, but it's it's a term that in the in the Bible usually has with it religious, con- you know, connotations. It's where worship takes place. All right, and so what are they going to do? They're going to have a, a sacrificial offering at the Bama, a zevach, okay, and then they're going to have a big party. 
and will be able to meet the seer, this this uh, prophet who's there. Okay, and that happens to be Samuel. So even Samuel is coming. He was invited. Isn't that nice? Probably was VIP. Okay. Um, and anyhow, uh, yeah, so it, this is what the Bible, and again, this is the book of Samuel also having gone through the redaction of a Deuteronomist. Okay. So, I mean, it, 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 there it is. And the point is, by the way, this is an indication that the, um, uh, if you're going to offer a zevach, what does Deuteronomy say about offering a zevach at some place other than where the divine presence resides? You're not allowed to. Now, one could make the case over here that it was still being transported around. It hadn't been done yet because David did not establish Jerusalem and didn't bring the ark into Jerusalem. So therefore, there was no such place, and therefore, therefore, you could have sacrifices at a bama, at a, some sort of a cultic place, um, you know, because God hadn't yet had not yet designated. Do you understand what I said? God says in Deuteronomy, you may only give a sacrifice to the to the location that I designate, one place in the whole country, but that that has not yet happened in this story yet. So maybe that's the answer. But the fact is, Samuel appears at Obama. Later on, I mean, that's going to be a, a no-no. All right. Having said that, that's why I did Now we're going to read something else. So uh, let's go to 1 Kings, Malachim Allah, chapter 3, verses 3 to 15. And we'll skip some verses, but just follow along. 1 Kings. Chapter 3, verses 3 to 15. See, here we go. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is what I want to hear. Solomon loved God, loved yud to follow in the traditions, the laws, the rules of David, his father. Rak babamot hu mezabeach umaktir. However, he is still offering sacrifices, animal sacrifices, and incense sacrifices at the Bamot. So there's a mild condemnation here of Solomon for worshiping at Bamot. So he went to the town of Gibon in order to sacrifice there. Because like what we saw before, with respect to um, Saul uh, and the this other Bama, the another at Givon, and because it was a great a big Bama, Elaf Olot Shlomo, Al Solomon would offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Wow. And that night, God appeared to Shlomo at Givon in a dream. Ask what you want and I shall give it to you. Okay? Then afterwards, and so he says, I don't, make me, give me, give me wisdom. So God says, aha, I'm going to give you wisdom and everything's good. Nobody's going to be like you. 
no one ever will be like you, okay? And so forth and so on. All right, but the point here is you can already see that there's an issue with Solomon. Of course, Solomon did even worse. What did he do? What 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 act did he do that put him in the category of a violator of certain laws that had been laid down? Bible. He he married too many women. There was a Devarim had a limitation on kings, temporal kings, and Shlomo thought he was he was not subject to it. So when he married all those women and spread himself too thin, so to speak. There were too many idolatrous practices from all the women he married for political alliances. That's right. Exactly. Now, the numbers that are cited in the Book of Kings uh, may explain why Solomon did not live a longer life. Um, he had 700 women and 300 concubines. I mean, that's that's think of the United Nations. <laughs> he went, He created the first United Nations, because oh. it must have been a worldwide organ, seven, you know, each one of those presumably was for some political reason. So, I mean, the, forget about the concubines or slaves. That's something else. Yes, in the, he was in the slavery business, but 700 what? And that's why he wrote at the end of his life, the book of Kohelet, right? Because he got very tired and frustrated with life. It's overwhelming. What's the meaning in it? He suddenly realized how miserable he had become. All right, whatever. Anyhow, yes, that, that was so, he was a bad boy. Okay. <laughs> Bert? He went to this shrine, right, that was not the central shrine, Right. I don't think if this is before he builds the temple. Okay, because because God seems to approve of that. Yeah, well, because Humsemin says, whatever you want, just tell me whatever you want. Right. So yeah. I would think that was God's approval yeah. for mm. the shrine, you would think. Confusing. Yeah, if I were Sandy, Solomon, I'd become very confused at this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. It's probably it. So this is, I can tell you what this is. And the, the redactor stuck that in because the original story did not have the statement that it was a bama. Um, okay, or that it was a problem. Because it says only rock. He was a good guy, except it says yeah. rock babamot who was a bad. However, he still worshipped on the bamot. All right, so that I can see is a redactor sticking it in to make sure that we understand that he was not, didn't find favor in God's eyes because of this. But yes, God spoke to him. In an approving, in an approving way. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Even more so, he's being very... Yeah, God happy. didn't say, what are you doing here? Right. <laughs> God said, whatever you want. Right, yes. Just tell me. Yes, so he asked for wisdom. That's nice. Well, it's a good, it's a good ask. Yes, good ask, yes. There's that old question people say, if you could have one thing in the world, what do, what would you ask for? So right. Solomon. Okay. Had a good All right. One. Now, moving on, moving on. It's getting more interesting. All right. So now we're going to see actual references to the extent to which idolatry hit home at the center of worship of Israel 
at least in the in the tribe of in the southern in the southern kingdom, and then secondarily in the the newly unified kingdom under Josiah, what was left of the north, not much. <clears throat> um, okay, so we're now around the year seven hundred. Okay, and we're talking King Hezekiah, one of the two kings who actively removed idolatrous practices or idolatry-like practices from their kingdom. Hezekiah and Josiah are the only two kings in the entire list in the Book of Kings who were actively cleaning out idolatry. And Josiah was much more effective than Hezekiah, but so be it. All right. And there, of course, there's these are both Jerusalem-based uh, uh, kings. All right. So I'm looking at uh, Malachim Bet, 2 Kings, chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. So please turn to 2 Kings, Malachim Bet, chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. And it was in the third year of the rule of Hosea, the son of Elah, um, king of Israel. Hmm, Elah. Interesting. That's the name of a pagan, of a tree that it was worshipped, an Elah. Hmm. That's all my granddaughter's name. All right. So in the third year of King Hosea, king of Israel, the northern kingdom, Malach Hizkiyahu ben Ahaz, that did Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, Melech Yehuda, king of Judah. Ben Asrim Shana Hayabamalko, he was 25 years when he became king. And he ruled in Jerusalem for 29 years, decent time. Veshem imo Avi bat Zechariah. I don't get this at all. His mother's name was Avi, daughter of Zechariah, my father. The daughter was named my father. Or maybe it was in a short, short form of, of something else like Abital or something like that. Abigail. Okay. Then that same thing. My father was redeemed. Yeah, could be. But this is, maybe that was her nickname, Avi. I don't know. Okay. Tybal. Um, I would think that what it is is just emphasizing Zechariah. It's not just his mother's name was this, but mother so they could get to Zechariah. That's number one. And it's also a reminder of John Steinbeck East. Well, wrong, other way. John Steinbeck East of Eden, where he gave um, the female character a name that is derived from father. Oh, could be. That's interesting. Maybe he learned it from this. I don't know. Hmm. But I don't know. Yeah, it could be. Maybe maybe Zechariah was of some importance. This is not the prophet Zechariah, because he doesn't live until after the uh, return of the exile, so much later on. All right. <clears throat> he did what was right in God's eyes, as his father David did. Well, I don't know. But all right. Aha. He removed those worship centers, those cultic places. Listen to this. Shibar. 
he destroyed, he smashed the Matzevot, and he chopped down the Asherah. So there you all have it, right? He did it. But what's more than this? And he cut up the brass serpent that Moses made. Remember in the desert, the snakes, the poison snakes. And God says, put, make a brass serpent, hold it up, tell the people to look at it, and they will be cured. That's one of the weirdest stories in the entire Bible. Okay, now is that the, what you would call it, the sign of the doctor? Right, a serpent being, you know, but not probably not. That, I that, thought that was two. I thought the sign of the doctor was two serpents. Well, there's two, but sometimes there's, oh. only, there's one with only one as well. There's a doctor here. Yes, doctor. Sometimes it shows two. I, I can't comment on it's caduceus. The original one was there's two mind. doctors. Sorry, I forgot Bobby. I got two physicians here. What is, so what do you what do you guys say? Is it one snake or two snakes or either or? You got it's me. It's often both. It, oh, it oh. can be either. All right. What's that? The caducus it's called, right? Caducious. 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 Okay. Yes. Who was Hezekiah's father? At the beginning, it says he was the son of King Ahaz, and later he says, my father David. Oh, no, no, no. He's my ancestor. Ah, okay. Right. His ancestor, David. All right. But in Hebrew, he calls him his father. No, no, but Abotenu means our ancestors. It says Aviv. Forefathers. Yeah, Aviv is his father, but it means his his ancestor. Don't argue with me on this. I know too much about it. <laughs> All right. No, well, I, I believe it, but it doesn't. No, no, no. Say... I mean, it, it it means it means ancestor. Okay, our ancestors. Look, we say Abotenu for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Himotenu for Saref Garachaleya. They're not my fathers. They're not my grandfathers. Yeah. They're my ancestors. That's what it means. Okay. So, but here's the, look what it says that they had taken it. The Israelites took it, by that time, by the time when Hezekiah lived, and you clearly this is written sometime later, because by those days, by that time, i.e. when Hezekiah lived, B'nai Israel, they were burning incense to it. That means they were worshiping it. And they even gave it a name, the Nechushtan, which is a great name. Right, because it's Nachash is there and the Choshet, which is bronze. Okay, so it's both all wrapped into one. So they named it and he destroyed it in Jerusalem. Okay, he destroyed it in Jerusalem. So that's not okay, Bert. I was just going to say this is an issue that continues today, it's gone through all of Jewish history of worshiping things. I think the rabbis took the Ten Commandments out of the service because they didn't want people to worship them. They were afraid. Uh, I would submit that today probably there are some people who worship particular rabbis. Yes, that's true. Or things, or things that belong to them. Yes. 
That is true. There's no more comment. Right. Without mentioning names, there's one particular <laughs> rabbi who in certain groups within his, uh, and this is a blessed, this rabbi of blessed memory, uh, but his, certain of his groups actually have his picture on the eastern wall of their synagogue. So when they pray, uh, they're looking at him. And I would imagine things that belong to them as well. I mean, this is part of the thing. Oh, you know, yeah, you've got the coat that belonged to such and such a person. Yes, that yes, there's something yes. holy about that coat. Right. It's exactly. It's it's like it's like the rep, the relics that they used to bring back right. from Israel during the Crusades. So these issues even continue even today. Yes. Right. All right. So so that's uh, Hezekiah. Hooray for Hezekiah. Okay. Hooray for Hezekiah. Now, let us turn to King Josiah, and we're going to look at selections from 2 Kings chapter 23. That's a long chapter. We're not going to read everything, so I'll just point out to you the verses I want you to look at, all right? Okay. So, um, uh, I, don't, I didn't copy the Hebrew here. I just copied the English because, and, and it's, look, at it's, it's in very small print. I mean, this is really tiny print, but I have my glasses on so I can read it. All right, so <clears throat> here we go. So I'm looking at good one... ophthalmologist. Huh? I said because you have a good ophthalmologist. Yeah, that's right. Yes, I wonder who that might be, Barbara. Um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, <clears throat> what verse are you on? Chapter 2 of, of uh, I'm sorry, verse 2. Uh, he read to them the entire text of the Covenant Scroll which had been found in the house of Adonai. Okay. All right. Now, I don't know what this means. The king stood by the pillar and solemnized the covenant. Why did he stand by a pillar? I don't know. That's strange. All right, moving on. So he renews, again, this is the king renewing a covenant, right? All right. <clears throat> the verse 4. Kind of interesting because the pillars were in in the last king, um, the last chapter we were reading. The pillars were broken up by the king. Right, but, the, but this is, I think he's talking here about a pillar in the temple, part of the structure of the temple. Or I think that's where he is. So they had pillars in it, but why it mentions standing by the pillar, particularly, is strange. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. It, it is a pillar the same as a matseva. In some respects, there were pillars that served that purpose. Whether, but it, I, I just call, it just hit me just now, so I haven't given it a lot of thought. All right. Then the king ordered the high priest Hilkiyahu, the priests of the second rank, and the guards of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the objects made for Baal and Asherah and all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron, and he removed the ashes to Bethel. Wow. I mean, these, these were in the temple, capital T? The temple. In the temple. Okay. And and then, then he brings the ashes to Beit Ale. Now, Beit Ale was in the northern kingdom. Again, this is part of the northern kingdom that technically was supposed to be in the hands 
of the of the Assyrians, its northern kingdom, but it's just across the border, and it would appear that this was an area in the southern part of the northern kingdom where the Assyrians did not uh, rule the roost. So why does he take the ashes of these um, pagan, clearly pagan god images, why does he take them to Bethel, Bethel? Because he was in one synagogue and Bethel was the other one and he wanted to make a mess. No. Okay. Tybal, why did he take it to Bethel? Because Bethel is where Yaakov made, got renamed to Israel. It's it's the earliest reminder of what was supposed to be going on. Close. I think that's part of the truth, uh, but I'm going to be take that down many centuries to his time. What was in Bethel before the conquest of the Assyrians? Uh, was that one of the golden calves there in Dan? Yes, Dan? yes, yes, bingo. So by bringing the ashes of these idols there, what was he doing to the to Bethel? Why did he bring it? He was there? repurposing it. He was saying. No, no. no. Remember, no repurposing, only one place. Jerusalem, that's the law of Deuteronomy. That's the law of his, his covenant. No he was polluting it. He was what? Polluting it. Polluting them, I would say. Polluting, you know, polluting the site. He was desecrating them in order to prevent anybody from putting it back into shape and opening up a new temple there. Exactly. He was he was polluting. He was desecrating them. That was his intention. It's closed for business permanently. Tear it down. Okay. All right. Moving on. But yeah. according, to, according to this, there were priests. It wasn't just that there was a Matseva in the temple. There were priests who were leading some kind of service. Yes, 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 yes. Absolutely. And there were priests whom he killed and others whom he fired. <clears throat> this is really big time a purge. This is Hashem, a Hashem didn't send a lightning bolt to kill the priests. Well, um, he didn't. Uh, he made Hilkiyahu find the. Uh, <laughs> okay. By the way, it's interesting to note that that the um, there's a lot of priestly engagement in the um, Deuteronomic and post Deuteronomic uh, reforms. Hilkiyahu, the priest, finds it right. Uh, is Yechezkel, the priest, decides that he's going to design his own version of a temple, right? And as under the influence of of Deuteronomic law, uh, Jeremiah, a, a powerful advocate of Josiah's reform, the prophet was a priest, and Ezra, who promulgated the Torah, uh, in the fifth century, was a priest, and I don't know that people have paid attention to this, but it's quite clear that the tradition tells us that the role of the priesthood in this in this reform process was quite large. That's my conclusion. Okay, it wasn't just the prophets qua prophets and the kings qua kings. There was a priestly. This, this, there's a priestly 
substructure beneath the Deuteronomic tradition uh, that was being played out. Okay, and these are extremists, if you wish. In our eyes, they're heroes. But in the eyes of the people then, these are what you would call um, religio-nationalist extremists. Think about it. They want a kingdom. They probably maybe want to see a king. I mean, there seems to be, there was some, well, the, the Persians got that out of their system. But the fact is that they were priests, zealous priests, and they brought about all these reforms. Okay, moving on. Now, uh, yes. Okay, right. Oh, how about this one? Verse 7. He tore down the cubicles of the male prostitutes in the house of the Lord at the place where women wove coverings for Asherah. Okay? Then, um, where does he mention her? Just a minute. So clearly he's talking about the Asherah. Okay. Wasn't this part of Canaanite worship that they were prostitutes at their... Uh, Apparently, right. They, yeah, they believed that uh, having sex was imitating the creativity of gods or something like that. Right. Yes, yes. Uh, and and the, the um, yes, Jeremiah, and remember the women, it says here, women wove, wove things for Asherah. So I'm going to skip now. Uh, you don't have it, I'll just read it. So Jeremiah, and this is just what I was talking about, chapter 7, verses 16 to 20. Okay? Um, so he says, as for you, do not pray for this people. Do not praise a cry, raise a cry on... Now, when whole God is talking to Jeremiah, don't pray for this people. Don't raise a cry of prayer on their behalf. Do not plead for me, for I will not listen to you. Don't you see what they're doing in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather sticks, the fathers build the fire, and the mothers knead dough and make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour libations to other gods to vex me. Okay? Assuredly, thus said my servant, then Jeremiah continues, My wrath and my fury will be poured out upon this place on human beings and on animals, on the trees of the field and the fruit of the soil it shall burn. Okay? Anyway, the queen of the heaven and the fact that women are involved in the in the process of that worship, and we have the same thing here. So it's very likely that queen of the heaven, to which Jeremiah refers, is, is Asherah. Okay? So that's Josiah. Now, Josiah, of course, uh, did, got a good head start on this process, but uh, around 605, he was killed in battle with the Egyptians because apparently he had decided that was in, it was in his best interest to make a pact with the Assyrians, who still ruled at that time. This is before the Babylonians. No, maybe with the Babylonians. Sorry. They already had moved down. Sorry. He wanted to, he wanted, he was on the side of the Babylonians and the Egyptians had sent troops up north into Canaan, into what would have, was Israel, the northern, what was, was the northern kingdom. And apparently he went there to 
try to stop the Egyptian troops, and he was killed in battle. So politics got in his way. Okay. All right. Uh, Mark, you just turned on your thing. Did you want to say something? I was thinking about uh, different instances of uh, slavery uh, and the long-lasting effects. You know, when when black slaves were were brought to America, they brought their idols in some cases, and it, it intermixed with the Christianity that was forced on them. But they didn't necessarily give up their uh, idols, and it was like. Oh, we fam- talked about this earlier. Remember, we right, said right. It was a process, yeah. But here, the point is that um, the, uh, the it shows you the extent to which. This was internalized, not just the masses. It was in the temple. There were priests involved in this. That's how deeply it had made its way into the heart of the worship of God. Yeah, they had to respond to uh, popular demand for for these. The priests are supposed to lead, not follow. Yeah, but it isn't always that way. Um, well, it could be, but, but, uh, well, look, the fact is, hold on. One thing you've got to keep in mind, and it says over here, he, de- he defiled the Tophet, which was where his father, Menashe, offered ch- child sacrifices in what it was called, what we now call the Gay Ben Hinnom. Okay? And so it's clear that the fact that, and the father there, Menashe, for 55 years was a pagan sympathizer, okay? And he uh, allowed the spread of paganism undoubtedly in order to uh, establish stronger relations with the pagans in in the area, whether they were local pagans, maybe against the Assyrians, because this is already going back 50 years beforehand. So I mean he he was a real nasty guy. Well politics were intermingled. Yeah, of course. To, to uh, establish one's uh, power base. Yeah, exactly. But doesn't I mean from the perspective though of you know what became Norma, the what became the Judaism after the return of the exiles that doesn't justify it. Cuz the message God said no. Right? God said no. The kings don't count. God said no. That's the whole point. And Josiah and Hezekiah heard the word of God. That's what these people would be saying. And we would probably agree with them. Or say, well, no, no. We would say, guys, it's a process. But, you know, when you're in the middle of the process, you don't want it to be a process. You want to get to the conclusion already. And if yeah. It, in, in current days, how, how is it that Trump is aligned with evangelicals? <laughs> there isn't a religious bone in the man's in right. the man's body. Yeah, yeah. thankfully there, there are some evangelicals who raise that very case, the very same question. Yes. Yeah. All right. So, um, okay. So there you have our beloved King Josiah. All right now, uh, the the conclusion of today's lesson is going to be the show and tell time. All right. Okay. So. Um, I'm going to show you three photographs. I took none of them. I was able to pull them out of other sources. And I'm going to take you from about 1000 BCE 
to sometime in the ninth century BCE to um, uh, the around also the ninth century ninth century BCE, and show you exactly what we were what we have been talking about, and with this we will conclude. Okay, so um, I have taken people up to the Herbet Kayafa, which is now called the Ella Valley Fortress. Um, it's a, a few, I don't know, maybe 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. It overlooks the Ella Valley, where, according to the biblical account, David killed Goliath. There's a river that runs through there. And uh, it makes sense because, I mean, Goliath was from the town of Gat, which was one of the five uh, centers of the Philistines. And if you continue north, no, sorry, east along that river, you get to Gat. So it's like a line from that Philistine center that comes up this way. And it, it actually is like a gateway to the wadis that lead up to Jerusalem. So having a fort right there means that you could cut off the flow of troops uh, up to the capital city. Okay? Now, Hirbet Hayafa had some controversy regarding its dating, but pretty much the consensus now is that it was built in the year 1000, somewhere around the year 1000 BCE. And it's a fortress that held, they figured, based on size, based on what they found there, the rooms, uh, the vessels, and so forth and so on. Uh, it was Israelite, and it had uh, enough for five, room enough and supplies enough for about 500 people. And the stones that went into the walls are huge. And you'll see pictures of some of them here. But I was by a stone that must have weighed tons. And it's one of those things that a king would build to defend their boundaries. And so this may be one of the only, the, one of the few uh, remnants of fortifications built by either King Saul or King David. Okay, because it's it, it's dated somewhere between like 1020 to 9, 980, 960, in that range. And all of the, they found vessels there, you know, pot, pottery in particular. It's all from the area, not a lot of imports into this place. Um, and among other things, they found this. By the city. They were found, they found five of them. I think four of them or three of them all together in one place and then some separated ones. And this was by the gate of the city. Why would you put a Matseba by the gate of a city or a fortress to protect it, right? God's presence should be there. Therefore, you put a Matseba. You can see it's, it's, it's a cut stone especially if you look at the, the vertical cut on that. All the stones around that are rough cut. They're not even cut, right? This is a cut stone. And it looks, it's a, you'll see some in a minute that look very similar to this, okay? 
There's no evidence of any markings on it. It would be more, from what I understand, of the southern version of the Matseva, which did not have any imagery on it. It was it's a, that was their tradition. It was a plain, uh, plain stone. Okay, Kaibel. Um, I can't quite. I mean, I don't have something. Is it five feet, six feet, eight feet? Oh no, no. It's. Uh, I understand your question. I. I mean, I was. Uh, maybe two feet, three feet tall, two feet probably, two and a half. Not huge. No, these were not huge. Okay. All right. I mean, there you can see it more closely. All right. So there's there's number one. So that's the thousand. But here you can. I mean, the point is the continuity of this. That's the interesting thing. This one is a. It's a drawing of a photograph, actually. Uh, this I pulled this. I think out of. Sioni Zebit's book. <clears throat> this was found at Tel Dan, which of course was a pagan center, right? That, I mean, uh, it, no, sorry, it was an Israelite center. That's where, according to the Book of Kings, Jeroboam built one of his two golden calves. One was in Dan, and one was in Bethel, at the boundaries of his kingdom. So uh, the one uh, he explains Bethel by saying, you guys who live in the south, because the northern kingdom was considerably larger than the southern kingdom, well, except you have the Negev, the desert areas in the south. But in terms of populated area, it was larger, it was more powerful, it was richer, there had different different take on Israelite culture and so forth. But the main thing was in both of its cultic centers, and the one in the south was built so people wouldn't run to Jerusalem, which was right across the border, basically, give or take. So it had a there. It had a real significant reason for you know to keep people from running over there. Anyway, so here you see five stones set in order. Okay, you see them there, and they're clearly they're the one that particularly the one over here. It really is clearly marked, but even the other ones are more refined than the surrounding stones, which are part of the <laughs> Zoom. Can I call you right back? It's almost done. And the uh, no, uh, Mark, Mark, is that you talking? Gotcha. Yeah, sorry about that. Can you do it mute, please? All right, anyway. Um, so there you have five, okay, and people are not clear. Is this a pantheon? But again, it's Israelite. They're pretty sure about that. Uh, is the one in the middle the, the the primary god? Is the one on the on this side the primary god? You know, but it's uh, it, it, it is there was there another image of some kind like this that didn't survive? But it, the, the fact is, these are Matzevot in a an Israelite cultic center. Okay, so this is the second one. Yeah, Mark. Yeah, uh, was there any evolution between Matseva and our our traditions of uh, tombstones standing up? And, no, no, uh, no, 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 no. Our, our mezuzahs did mezuzahs replace these eventually? No, no, they, no. The, the the use of stones. Remember, even in the Bible itself, they're used as markers. Okay, they're not strictly um, cultic items. They could be testimonies to a covenant that we have this in the Torah. We saw one before with Joshua. Testimonies to a covenant, agreements between people. Remember with 
with uh, Jacob, the story of Jacob and Laban, right? Uh, Laban, make, they, they build a pile of rocks called Gal Aid, a pile of witnessing, and that becomes Gilad. The name of the place was Gilad because of that pile. And then they also st- made a standing stone, okay? And that was a witness to their agreement between the two people, two men. No God involved directly, okay? And, and, and Rabbi, these are approximately two feet, tall, two feet tall? I don't know how tall these are. Yeah, you have no idea, but it's fine. I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know. <laughs> Thank- Wait a minute, there's, there is measurement. Hold on. Oh, yeah, hold on. So wait. Ah, there is a measurement. So they are, according to this, they're less than a meter. So yeah, about, yeah, three feet. They are less. Yeah, okay. The taller ones are about close to three feet tall. Got it. Still heavy. Yeah. <clears throat> I forgot. I didn't even notice that there. So anyway, no, so the standing stones, uh, it's a common. It it's, goes beyond worship. All right. And now my favorite one of all, this is the Tel Arad Fortress. Some of you have seen this in other classes. I've shown it to you. This is sometime around 800s, early, either the late 800s, early 700s. And this was a fortress built in Arad, the city. It's still there. It has been there for a long time, the city. Um, and it was Arad and Beersheba, which also was a cult, also was a cultic center. The two towns were the uh, were positioned uh, on what was effectively the southern boundary of the tribe of of, of the country of Judah, Yehuda. Okay, so that's it was a protector of the boundary, and this is a full fledged uh, fortress. I don't know what the estimates of people in it are were. Uh, and a lot was left standing. Uh, presumably, this was destroyed by the by the Babylonians. Uh, uh, it's, it's we don't know the 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 fort. Apparently, the the previous fortress that I showed you, the first one at uh, uh, from a thousand BCE, that probably was destroyed when uh, the king uh, Sh- uh, uh, Shashank of Egypt around nine, right after Solomon dies, nine twenty, he again tries to retake Eretz Israel, and apparently that that um, that fortress went down under his conquest. Okay, he wreaked havoc there. Then he left. Okay, and then Jeremiah and Rehoboam take over, and they run the show. But there was an incursion of the Egyptians at that time with a powerful army, and apparently that's that's when that was destroyed. This this one was probably probably went down with the Babylonian conquest, 597, 586, sometime in that time frame. Okay, and this is to me the most fascinating one. Uh, you can find the stones that you're going to be looking at. The, I mean, the items that you're looking at are are not these are replicas exact replicas. The originals are in the museum, the Jerusalem Museum, across from the Knesset. Okay, you can go down to the archaeological level, and they're sitting there, you know, laid out in a manner similar to this, but this is the this is the site itself. You should be interested in knowing, and this is not something I, I don't know if they found this in other in the other sites. 
standing outside of this, where let's assume from the point of view of the viewer here, this would have been taken right in front of an altar, a Mizbeach, made from uncut stones, according to the law in Exodus, at the end of the Ten Commandments, <clears throat> at the end of chapter 20 of Exodus, you will read, if you want to build an altar, you may make it of uncut stones. It's an altar of uncut stones. It's a if it's a block, uh, about I don't know a meter, a meter and a third, in in you know, all dimensions. It's it's a big thing, maybe maybe a meter and a half tall. That was for animal sacrifices. What you're going to see in this picture are incense altars for burning of incense. Okay. And this is the area where the burning, the, this is small. It's not very big. But the area that you're going to see where the incense altars are would be the Kodesh, the holy place, which would be the anteroom. And behind it would be the Kodesh or Kodeshim, the Holy of Holies, which is where God, the divine presence would be. So it's sort of based on the same layout of the Mishkan and the temple in Jerusalem, right? That same concept. You have an outside courtyard, the holy place, and the holy of holies. Okay, so this is built on that same model. Okay, now here we go. Israelite, circa 800. Okay, what do you see? How many pillars? Four. No. The ones in front are incense altars. Sacrifice, incense sacrifices. We've already discussed the incense sacrifice. So two it's two. It's two, right? Two, two or three. Two, right? Two pillars in the back. Okay, one you can see is taller than the other. The taller one's got a rounded top. The shorter one has a square top. Look at the size of the incense altars. The incense altars, I can. I, I mean, I can. The incense altars were probably about two and a half feet tall, and the stones were maybe. I don't know, four feet, three and a half, four feet tall, approximately. I mean, those, I, look, those look like gravestones. Well, I mean, no, these are those these up in front. No, not the for the ones in back, the matzevot. Well, I don't know. They're they, you mean the color? Oh, grave. No, the the shape like gravestones. Like yeah, I'm grave wondering stones. if if the custom of gravestones, oh, gravestones somehow related to that. Well, Bert, you're the other way around. Gravestones are based on this. <laughs> That's what I meant. That's what I meant. I don't know. No, no, no. I mean, look, these are pretty universal shapes, if you think about it. There's nothing novel about the shapes here. I don't know. But anyway, all right. So the key thing is, if this doesn't convince you that there was that there was a there are two gods there, I don't know what will, right? Because when you have incense altars. That means you're worshiping a god. And when it's clear that one is the senior god and one is the junior god, and you have precedent for references to to uh Vavhe and his Asherah, which you find on the walls of Kuntilat Ashrud uh in the that I showed you. I mean I'd show you the pictures, but the the, the notion of of a male and female is there and elsewhere references to them, as you saw in the in Josiah's report or the uh, Kings the Book of Kings report of Josiah 
taking out the Baal and Asherah worship items or whatever they were. Uh, so this notion of God and a consort is pretty widely spread around. Okay. And so, you know, this is yud heh and his Asherah. And it, there it is in material form, not just verbiage, not just pictures. And the key thing is the incense altars. Okay, that means individual worship for each one on their own personal altar designed for their status. Okay, you got the king who's number one and the queen who's number two. There you got it. You can go visit it yourself. I remember when I first got there, I had a group of people. We walked, we did it, and I got up over there, stood in the middle. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce you to Hashem and his wife, Mr. and Mrs. Hashem. Here they are. Say hello. You know? But basically, this is what this is. Fascinating, is it? And you can see the continuity of these things. The Asherah here is very reminiscent of the Asherah. I'm sorry. The, the stone, the matseva, this, this matseva here is very similar to the matseva in the, in the, um, the fortress, the other fortress, right? So, um, there you have it. So this is the process that we talked about that ultimately culminated in the, during the period of the exile and return. And my, my hypothesis always has been that the, um, the destruction of Jerusalem, of the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom finally hit home. And the people realized that this God Yudhevavhe means business. But the problem was when they came back, there were people who had left behind, not everybody, not all the Israelites in the Southern Judah were sent to exile. There were people who remained, but they were out of touch with the leaders for 50 years. And during the 50 years, there was backsliding. And that's why when you have people of the upper classes marrying off their, allowing their sons to marry daughters from these, these groups, eventually Ezra and Nehemi say, kick them out, get rid of those ladies, get out of here, get them out of here. Because they're, whatever they're, concept of Israelite religion was apparently had become tainted with a falling back into certain pagan practices, which had been active, as you can see, during the period before the destruction of Jerusalem. And that's what the prophets kept saying. There's idolatry. What do you expect? This is before and during and after the, the destruction. So it took a long time for the to remove the stains from the cloth. Eventually it happened. When? I don't know. Sometime that, that it really it was all gone. Fifth century, fourth century. Okay, you don't hear much about this as you come into the into the Hellenistic period. It doesn't seem to be an issue anymore. So it must have been cleaned out. But then of course you begin the process then of absorbing elements of Greco-Roman culture, okay, and the ironic, irony is that certain of those ideas ultimately fed into the creation of Christianity, 
right, as an offshoot of Judaism, but with, again, um, allowing the overtones of what would be what we would call paganism to sleep to slip back into the monotheism, and that's where you have the Trinity, and so forth. So it's an ongoing issue, and as we said either last night or sometime earlier, or even today, there are still elements of different kinds of this with us even today in different ways. All right, next week, we're going to begin another journey. We're going to, uh, oh, Bobby, yes. No, you're unmute. unmute, unmute. Yes, Cork, but I just want to share a word of good and welfare, especially with Tybell. Huh? I don't know if Tybell, you noticed that Judy Klitzner is coming to speak in the States. I think it was I think it was Tybell. I was did him on the party's list, but I'm still quarantining at home. And she's even coming near me and I can't <clears throat> can't go hear her. Oh, you're on the East Coast? I'm in Maryland, but I don't want to keep everybody. I'm an oh. out of town member who, who lives in Maryland. Okay. If you call this living. Right. She's the, the the most distant member of our synagogue. <laughs> okay. Anyway. So next time we're going to we're going to look at a very uh, interesting um, element of and, and this is of, of biblical literature and of traditional uh, the connections of traditions that uh, transcend many books of the Bible uh, and show the continuity or the similarity in timing of certain traditions in, in texts that you would have no given no thought to even thinking about connections uh, and and how you see a kind of macro um, presentation of intra-biblical traditions among different books. And now it, basically what we're going to see is the parallels in the live, in the life and not times, but in the life of Jacob and King David. Okay, you're going to be jumping back and forth, and I suggest that when you bring your Bibles to class next week, you do the following. I just did this today. I put a a post-it right here. You see, it says Jacob, that's the pink one, and the blue one, it says David. So this, the, the Jacob focuses on the Jacob accounts, which is a lot of material in the book of Genesis. And, of course, the David accounts are in the book of Samuel. Do you have chapters and verses for us to No, I don't too much. It's just, it's, you don't. It, it's all over the place. And, I mean, you're going to be sitting, if, unless you got a lot of time on your hands, I'd rather just do it on the spot. Okay. okay. I, I'm trying to be realistic here. It's complex, and I'm going to be giving you, I've done subsequent, I I wrote an art, I I actually wrote this up and sent it off to a professor of Bible in in Israel, and he liked what I was suggesting, making the note that others have already begun to work in this area, and it's true. I've, I've discovered on my own about five or six people who have seen this, and this is already published, but I think there's some areas, some points that I have found that I haven't seen yet in these people, so I may have something to contribute with this if uh, you know if I feel so motivated. Uh, but it's uh, to me it's fascinating because you really see how how broadly 
these traditions uh, stretch, and both in terms of the text of the Bible, but also in terms of the the thinking of the biblical authors. And and what you know, it's hard, we're going to try to analyze what are they trying to do here, and it's not easy, and nobody's come up with a concrete answer. There's even question as to which came first, the chicken or the egg, and not clear. I have some thoughts about that, but it's not clear. You'll see. It's fast. If you really love Bible as literature, but not just that, as a literature that expresses values that are expressed across a variety of texts, you know, as we've seen in the books, those of you who are in the Psalms class, we see it there, right, where these notions that we 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 you know they're powerful ideas that pop up in places where you wouldn't normally expect it. Same thing here with these other sources. So we're going to make show how the 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 parallels in the details, and now we're going to get to really small details, the details in the life of Jacob and his family, and David and his family. All right, and right away your mind can start to think about. How are they viewed by the Jewish tradition in their in the, in the sense of what's their place in the in the national identity? Like you think about that on your own, okay? All right. I wish you all good health, well, peace, shalom al Yisrael, and um, thank you, Shabbos, happy Purim, etc., etc., and so forth. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.